Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. As we sit here halfway through December, finally, thankfully, blessedly able to glimpse the finish line of this epically, royally, horribly fucked up Anno Domini, it feels appropriate to spend the next couple of episodes of the pod engaging in some retrospective, year-in-review-ish real talk about two massive industries and realms of human endeavor that A, were profoundly affected by the seismic traumas and dramas of 2020, B, collided with politics and culture in ways that were illuminating and at times inspiring, and C, served as a lifeline for millions of us struggling to maintain our sanity. The topics that I'm talking about are sports and entertainment, the latter of which we will get to next week with a special guest I promise you will not want to miss, and the former of which we will turn to now with a guest I know you don't want to miss because you're, like, here. A prolific and endlessly engaging commentator on every aspect of American sports and a newfound friend who turns out to be every bit as sharp, affable, and authentic in this setting as he is on your TV. That would be Rich Eisen. The state of professional sports in America is we are alive. It's actually still happening. Despite everything going on in the world, it is still going down. I'm Rich Eisen. I approve this message. Rich Eisen has been a bright, shining fixture in the sports media firmament for the better part of the past 25 years. While he was still in his 20s, he burst on the scene on ESPN during its heyday in the 1990s, standing out even amid the network's famously funny, fast-talking, pop-culture-fluent roster of iconic hosts, Dan Patrick, Keith Olbermann, Robin Roberts, Craig Kilborn, and Stuart Scott, with whom Eisen teamed up to form a legendary co-anchorship of SportsCenter. In 2003, Eisen departed ESPN to become the face of the newly launched soon-to-be juggernaut that was the NFL Network, where he remains today, along with hosting The Rich Eisen Show five days a week, three hours a day, on NBC's new streaming service, Peacock. It goes without saying that Eisen knows a shit ton about sports, especially but not limited to football, past and present players and coaches, owners and oligarchs, stats and analytics, big trends and minute trivia. But what puts him on a different level than most sports broadcasters is that his depth is matched by breadth, his interest in and understanding of the myriad ways in which sports intersects with the wider culture, including politics. And that breadth, curiosity, and insight made all the difference in 2020, when pro sports were shaken as never before by two fundamentally non-sports phenomena in short order and rapid succession, COVID-19 and the racial justice and police reform movements spurred by the killing of George Floyd. How the league's players, coaches, and owners reacted was on one level plain for all to see. But what were the deeper dynamics in play? What lessons has the sports industrial complex learned from these experiences? What does the future hold on both fronts regarding the public health challenges that sports will continue to confront until the virus is tamed and the unprecedented wave of activism unleashed by Black Lives Matter? And finally, how well has the media that covers sports risen or not to the occasion? I had a hunch that Rich would have a lot to say about all of this, along with some choice reminiscences about the glory days at ESPN and Aaron Sorkin's forgotten masterpiece, Sports Night. And what do you know? It turns out that my hunch was right. So settle in and take a listen as Rich brings both his A-game and what he calls a touch of the vermeil to this first-ever Sports and Society year-in-review episode of Hell and High Water. I'm not sure who leads college basketball. You know, uh, it's done by committee. Uh, anything that's led by committee uh, is not agile in, in handling a situation.
and there was a consensus. It, it wasn't like well planned that we we're going to start November 25th, and uh, that was made without knowing if there's going to be where the vaccine was, how many cases, you know, and basically it was more of a mentality of get as many games in as possible. You know, would I, do I think things should be done a little bit differently? Yeah. I mean, there, uh, you know, a lot of ki kids aren't going to be able to go home for, for Christmas, probably a time where they should for mental health. Uh, we're just plowing through this. Rich, good to see you. Good to see you, John. I got, we have two great Americans there, Coach K uh, and Rich Eisen. So, um, uh, bro, Coach, Coach K on tape and Rich Eisen live and in person. Thank you. You know, it's funny, John, I've only met Coach K once. It was at a Jimmy V golf tournament when I was on ESPN, probably about 20 something years ago. I showed up, I watched him drop, I believe, Roy Williams off at the bag drop and I watched him make an actual K turn in his car. And I thought to myself, coach K making a K turn in a car. I need to make a mental note of this and tell it to any other person <laughs> I ever meet when they bring up coach K. So now you're the latest one. Awesome. I've once watched coach K make a K turn in his K car. That's, that's, that's awesome. Time. I love that. That's a story to dine out on. I've got that going for me. It's the end of the year. So we can do kind right. of a year in review of, of sports and, and society. And it's been a big year for sports and society. I'm, I'm always interested in the intersection of sports and culture and politics and, yes. and the broader social uh, milieu. Also a huge sports fan just in general. But this year has been, there's been a lot of shit, right? But I think a good place to start is sort of with, I mean, the reason I wanted to play the Coach K bite is because it's kind of the latest example of sports grappling with the pandemic, right? right. Here's, you know fabled college basketball coach saying, uh, I don't know, this plan that we had for, for playing amid this thing as COVID rages and, and resurges around the country, we're headed into the dark winter of COVID. Everyone says so. And here you have Coach K kind of going, I'm not sure this is a really great idea. Like, are we really, right. did, did we really think this through? So I want to talk about that specifically, but just as a starting point, I ask you a 30,000 foot question, which is how well do you think professional sports across the board have handled this unique challenge. Well, it's interesting that you do open this conversation right there uh, with a Coach K bite and then ask me about professional sports because college sports is playing because of money, you know, yeah. and because yeah. the revenue that college football brings in and the revenue that college basketball brings in is a significant amount of revenue that colleges need to have as many programs as possible or to pay for athletic departments or however athletics does keep revenue going for an institution of higher learning. And that's why they're doing it. Many of the, the college programs and college conferences have said that we need to do this for the kids. Jay Billis, who I think should be running the NCAA, he was on the air the other day on ESPN during a game, essentially saying, what are we doing? Because basketball in particular unlike the NFL, even though the NFL is a contact sport, basketball is a contact sport that's played indoors. Yeah. That's the problem, obviously, as you know, with the virus. So college basketball in particular, when you're dealing with a bunch of kids on a campus, and they're acting like college kids, it's very difficult to deal with the virus and play college basketball. That said, in terms of professional sports, the way that they are handling it, I think is 
as excellent as they possibly could. I mean, the innovation that the NBA and the NHL endeavored, that they showed and that they executed with their bubbles to complete their seasons, and also come up with a construct in which the teams could qualify for the playoffs, that we've never seen that before. Major League Baseball did its best, although it did its best usually to shoot themselves in the foot first, which they did. They went through about four weeks of of arguing kind of like in front of the kids who just didn't want mom and dad to get divorced, just make up and let's go happy uh, into the world as a family. They wasted a considerable amount of time, but did in fact finish the season. And then you've got the NFL, which uh, as currently you and I are talking at the top of week 14 of the 2020 season, John, this is the first week in about three weeks where every game is currently scheduled to go off as planned. Right. So it's not perfect. But what professional sports has been able to do this year has been amazing. And I am thankful for it in many different ways, not just because it keeps a roof over my head, but the way that the athletes have conducted themselves has been remarkable. And, um, you know, sports in our lifetime, John, as you know, uh, frequently blazes a trail in our country. It certainly sometimes is ahead of our country in terms of social mores and in terms of accepting things in our society that they might not ordinarily accept. Um, That if you recall, back in March, when the pandemic first really hit significantly in our country, nobody was talking about staying at home and quarantining and nobody was talking about ever going ahead and and locking down. But when the NBA first had its first COVID case in Rudy Gobert, Uh, occur. And the uh, Utah Jazz were getting set to play the Oklahoma City Thunder in in an arena filled with people. And Gobert tested positive and they had to stop playing the game. And the NBA decided to stop playing. And then NCAA followed suit and March Madness got canceled. The rest of the country kind of snapped to attention in a way that I don't think the government was explaining at the time. And once again, sports led the way right there, John. Well, yeah. I mean, famously, I think, you know, when the history of the COVID pandemic gets written that night in March, when three things happened, Donald Trump addressed the the nation about COVID, not satisfactorily, but did. And the NBA canceled its season. And Tom Hanks was reported to have contracted COVID and was in Australia. Right. That was a turning point night for where the country, everyone, whether you were more tuned into Hollywood or more tuned into athletics or tuned into politics, that moment was when everybody went, okay, fuck, like this is a real thing. Something's really happening and it's very serious. And you're right, people snap to attention. The the leagues, that is. The NBA, you know, the bubble was an incredible thing. And I'm curious Amazing. just to I'm curious to hear your reflections about it because you I'm sure have talked to more people who actually were in the bubble than I have mm-hmm. been. But I've of course read the accounts of it and I, I do think it's an extraordinary achievement. And it worked fabulously from the standpoint of public health. And now we are headed into the next NBA season where they're not doing the same thing. At a time when the pandemic is worse than it's ever been, the NBA is not even considering replicating the bubble again. So can you explain that to me? Yeah, because it was so radical and where players removed themselves from their families for a long time. Got there in mid-June and if you won the championship, you were there all the way through the summer into September. Yeah, they'll never do that again. And, it, you know, it's it's interesting. We were talking about it on my show when they were coming up with the ideas of the bubble. There were two ideas. One was Disney World and right. the other one was Las Vegas. And we were like, which one would you <laughs> want to be trapped in for three months? Which one would make it feel like it's nine months as opposed to three months? You know, 
remembering pre-pandemic when you show up in Vegas and you lose your first 15 hands of blackjack and you look at your watch and you go, oh shit, so we've only been here 10 minutes. I want to leave town already, you know? Um, but they chose the the bubble and in Disney World because, you know, obviously Disney is the main network sponsor of NBA action and ESPN and ABC. So from everyone that was at the bubble, uh, it was insane. It was just living in Disney World where you had your meals delivered in a certain way and there were certain restaurants that were quote unquote open and a lot of players were freaked out by it and you know paul george who just re-signed a max contract with the la clippers was very open about how he was battling depression and a lot of players were talking about their mental health being in the bubble away from family missing out on events uh, as you know, prior to the bubble, they were even thinking about not even restarting the season because of the murder of George Floyd. And then in the middle of that season, while they're in the bubble, you know, Jacob Blake shot in the back. Uh, and the Milwaukee Bucks, as you know, did not take the floor for a playoff game. And the Orlando Magic didn't know and the rest of the league didn't know. And that created a little bit of a an issue even amongst the players is to, you know, if we're going to do this, we need to all be together. And they paused activities for a few days. And then many of the players that I've spoken to were lamenting being inside of a bubble when they thought they should have been out in their communities. So put that all together. It was obviously a very unique time. They're not going to do that again. I mean, the, the money involved as well. I mean, NFL players are talking right now about maybe bubbling up for the playoffs in January, but even that is somewhat that that's not going to happen because, you know, whereas in the NBA, you just need three basketball courts for your use. I can't imagine having to find a place that's bubbled up with three football fields or four football fields if something like that is necessary. Right. So what's going to happen, I think, is players they're talking about right now in the NFL, John, about bubbling up a soft bubble, if you will, which would be finding a hotel in their town and staying there for the duration of their playoff run. That's still four weeks away from kids and parents. And, you know, the San Francisco 49ers, John, this past month were told by Santa Clara County that there are no contact sports allowed at any level for practicing or playing. And so the 49ers found this out, by the way, as they were flying down to Los Angeles to play the Rams, that they need a new home. And uh, they're playing in Arizona these two weeks. And if they are not cleared to return by Santa Clara County by December 21st, which is the date by which the order was initially put out there, doesn't look like things are improving here, then the the 49ers will have to stay down in Arizona for Christmas week. And I've spoke to members of that organization that had to tell their children as they were leaving to go play this past week against the Buffalo Bills, I might not be home for Christmas. What a major shitstorm within each household that was. So that's the answer as to why there will not be a hard, if you will, bubble anymore. And the question is, is how do you conduct a season involving a contact sport played indoors? How do you do that? Uh, I don't know how the NBA does that. Quite honestly, I just do not know. Just a, I imagine just an absolute ton of testing and contact tracing that much of the rest of our society would never, ever go through or think that their civil liberties were being impugned. The NBA is just essentially going to have to tell everybody and just what the NFL is doing. You have to report for work every day yep. and get tested, even on your off days. That's what they have to do.
Um, I don't know if you can hear them in the background. I got three small kids here. I got a 12, a nine and a seven. And don't, don't worry about your kids, Rich. It's not a problem. You've got three young kids and I've got two gargantuan dogs who make more noise than like 12 kids put together at any moment. Now they could start bellowing, barking or burst into this room and disrupt this entire podcast. So let's just all keep our fingers crossed. You keep your kids in check. I'll keep my dogs in check and we'll try to get through it. So, you know, look, here's the, I mean, this is what, what strikes me about the situation that the NBA is now facing. You know, we all agree, as we've been discussing, that that the bubble was an enormous, miraculous, in some sense, public health success. And yet, by the account of all the players in the league who've talked about their experience and what we've read about their experience from those reporters who were allowed into the bubble, it, it, it exacted a terrible toll on the players. You know, they were isolated in a really profound way from their families, from their friends, from their loved ones. And, you know, there have been reports uh, you know, in addition to the loneliness and in addition to some of them having family members who were getting COVID outside the bubble, you know, there are these other reports about John Lucas, who is an assistant coach on the Houston Rockets and has struggled with alcoholism his whole life, seeing all the players indulging in a lot of drinking inside the bubble and getting worried about those players and saying at one point in, in a kind of bubble wide meeting, kind of raising the issue with these players and saying, you know, I see you guys every night. I see how much drinking is going on here. It's not like there are many teetotalers in the league, but when there's nothing else to do, drinking becomes a bigger attraction, a bigger lure. And there was a lot of it going on in the bubble. And I'm, I'm not being critical, but Lucas was worried. Right. So you have on this one side players who are like, okay, we pulled this off, but we're never going to do it again. And on the other side, you have owners who have suffered enormously financially uh, they were glad that they got the the bubble together and that they made it through the season and that it's been lauded in all these ways that it's been lauded. But they also, in terms of merchandise sales and food sales and alcohol sales and uh, you know tickets <laughs> tickets to the games and you know fans in the seats, all the the economic underpinnings uh, of the league were just chewed up by the bubble experiments. So in this one case, you had perfect alignment between the players' association, which didn't want to do the bubble again in the 2021 season. And you had owners who didn't want to do it again. The players didn't want to do it because of the personal costs. The owners didn't want to do it because of the financial costs. And one thing I know about pro sports is that when you have alignment between the players and the owners on anything, that is what will happen. Or in this case, what will not happen. There were not going to be a bubble. And so as you've suggested, Rich, you know, it seems to me like what's part of what's happening here is the NBA is looking at the NFL and saying, what can we learn from the NFL? Learn from our experience, but also learn from the NFL's experience. What has gone right? What has gone wrong? How do you do a soft bubble, so to speak? Uh, and they're trying to learn those lessons kind of on the fly as they head into this next season, which, again, the, the most important element here, they are about to have a season that runs in the heart of the pandemic at the worst time imaginable to be trying to engage in professional sports in an indoor sporting activity, the, the pandemic, as bad as it was last spring when the NBA canceled its season, and as bad as it's been in the course of 2020 when they when they decided to do the bubble, it's nothing like as bad as it is right now or as bad as it's going to be in January and February and March, which is, of course, right in the middle of the NBA regular season. And I wonder what you think about that and what lessons they can take potentially from the NFL as they head into the new season. Right. And I've spoken on my show a couple of occasions to the chief medical officer of the NFL, Dr. Alan Sills, who's from Duke. And 
what the NFL is doing is truly going to be something that will be written about for quite some time as they've created as hard a bubble as they can in each facility, all 32 facilities. Right. Everyone's wearing a contact tracer. I have to wear a contact tracer when I go to work at NFL Network as part of the NFL protocols. It's just wow. this, this little white device, like a square, like this big with a, a flashing dot in the middle. And then it makes a noise if you're within six feet of somebody. And we had to turn those things off because on live television, you know, <laughs> when Steve Mariucci, who's a close talker, moves within me, you know, I can't hear a, a beeping going on. Yeah. But um, they also have video within each facility and a demand to wear masks within each facility. So whenever somebody tests positive, they go and take a look at the video and the contact tracers and look at everything to figure out who is, quote unquote, a close contact and, and who is not. But the reason why I bring all this up is the Dr. Sill says talking to all the all the leagues across the world, across the world, not a single league has reported yet an instance of transmission of the virus player to player in the game. They have not been able to contact huh. trace. somebody has COVID-19. They got it from the left guard when the defensive lineman was right across from him. You know, like we've we've yet to hear that. But that's my concern about an indoor sport, right. that the reason why these bubbles for the NBA and the NHL worked is they removed COVID from the bubble. So I don't know how the NBA is going to go through it. I hope that they will survive it. But I do believe the NBA deserves our fandom, as well as every single athlete that's shown. But the NBA was the first to show, along with the NHL, to be honest with you as well, that all of these athletes, they played in front of empty arenas all yeah of them. all yeah. these nfl players are playing in, in pretty much in empty stadiums there are some yeah. that do have fans but these are all athletes and major league baseball players too they're all athletes that their entire lives have been used to playing in front of human beings and feeding off the energy of the crowd yep. and this is the first time where they were not and the way that they performed and acted as if there were fans and they were just as into it as any other time made me sit on my couch and forget about the fact that those were virtual Zoom fans being beamed on the wall yeah. or the cardboard cutouts of Larry King behind the <laughs> home plate in Dodger Stadium. It made me forget about all that yeah. insanity, you know, yeah. and yeah. I got lost in the action. And so yeah. all of these athletes deserve our respect for doing this in the pandemic to get us hopefully to a COVID-free 2021 where we all go back to being in the stands and losing ourselves in the competition that way. What have you heard, if you've heard anything from players about that experience? You were talking about it a little bit, but I'm just curious if you've heard like what their reaction has been to being in these settings where they've had to play in front of either no fans or very few fans. And like, how has the, how's that affected their psyches? Well, to, I mean, to... it's been weird from in the first few weeks, very weird. It's taken some time getting used to, and, and you've seen it manifest itself in ways that are really odd. Yeah. that we haven't seen before. For instance, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with Tom Brady, of all people at the controls, have had a dreadful time playing night games this year. They just have not been able to perform well under the lights. They got waxed by the Saints. They barely beat the Giants in New Jersey. They've had a difficult time sitting around all day and then walking into a stadium for a night game where usually there's such an energy to it and there's zero energy. Other teams have no problem. Clearly, the Saints had that same situation under a night game on Sunday night and beat the tar out of the Bucks. So you see some teams having an issue with it. At the beginning of the bubble, 
Uh, the Lakers were not very good at all. Their first few games in the bubble, they couldn't grasp it. While a team like the Phoenix Suns didn't lose in the bubble, they almost made the playoffs. And Devin Booker, it was an exciting run that we saw for them in the bubble. And then uh, the Blazers were able to handle the bubble very well, making the playoffs. And then in the NFL, even though some players who miss the fans, when they're on the road, they kind of don't. Right. Last week, John, the road teams went 10 and 5 in last week in the NFL, 10 and 5, including a Giants team that is, you know, at Colt McCoy, uh, their backup in Seattle, where normally you cannot hear yourself think. Right, sure. The fans are so loud there. Yeah. Definitely. And the Giants were down 5 nothing and actually came back and won that game. So you're seeing some really weird results, I think, because there are no fans in the stands from either teams that, you know, have had a tough time adjusting to it and other teams saying, well, we'll take that silence and run with it and win a game we have no business ordinarily winning. Yeah. So I think, you know, my buddy, Will Leach, who uh, was the founder of Deadspin uh, and now covers sports in a whole bunch of different places, both on television and in print. Mm -hmm. Um, he is the sports columnist at New York magazine, which is where I know him best from. He worked for me for a little while. Uh, and it's in the context of New York magazine that there's a column that I wanted to talk to you about. And I'm desperate to know, Rich, what you think about this, because I think the story is super interesting and super illustrative of a lot of things. You just mentioned this fact that there hasn't been a single reported case of transmission of COVID from player to player that took place inside a game. And that is sort of the context in which this particular controversy, uh, uh, the backdrop against which this particular controversy plays out. This is a column that Will Leach wrote in New York Magazine in uh, late November, uh, talking about a college football game uh, between Florida State University and Clemson that was scheduled to take place on the Saturday uh, before Thanksgiving. For people who don't know the background of this story, I think it'd probably be helpful for me to you know fill you in a little bit. So I'm going to read a little bit um, from the column just to give you the background and what the controversy was. So here goes. On Saturday, three hours before a college football game between Florida State and Clemson, FSU team doctors persuaded school administrators to cancel because they learned that a Clemson offensive lineman, a position involving close contact and heavy breathing on opponents, had been allowed to practice all week despite showing COVID symptoms. The player had finally tested positive the day before the game was scheduled. The cancellation was responsible behavior on Florida State's part. Pretty obvious, really. Would you let someone you cared about breathe heavily around unmasked, clearly COVID-exposed people for three hours? But the response from the college football universe was not few. Florida State's player sure dodged a bullet there. It was, why is Florida State so afraid to play Clemson? The leader of this deranged chorus was, perhaps inevitably, Clemson coach Dabo Swinney. Swinney, who is a monumental prick, I'm reading Will Leach here, not me, did not do what a responsible normal human being would do, which would be to apologize to Florida State and immediately check on the health and well-being of his offensive line. He instead blasted FSU doctors and coaches. And I'm now going to play what he said. If the standard to play was zero positive tests, then we would have never had a season. This game was not canceled because of COVID. COVID was just an excuse to cancel the game. To me, the Florida State administration forfeited the game. And if they want to play Clemson, in my opinion, they need to come to Clemson or they need to pay for all expenses. Other than that, there's no reason for us to play them. We were there, we were ready, and we met the standard. I uh, think it is worth reminding our listeners, as Will Leach did uh, his readers, about one important fact about Dabo Swinney. 
uh, I'll, I'll quote Will here, quote, uh, here is your reminder that Swinney is the highest paid public employee in the state of South Carolina and ostensibly in charge of the health, safety, and education of nearly 100 unpaid college laborers. <laughs> so having said that, I ask you, what, what, what do we make of that behavior on the part of, first of all, just what do you think of Davos Swinney in that instance? Obviously, he's a great coach. You know, Clemson, great football program. Right. The guy's amazing. Great, great football coach. He's controversial on a bunch of fronts yes. with a bunch of people. But I'm curious what you think of this. Should I hear Davos Swinney there and say, yeah, that's reasonable. That guy's got a point. Or, no, well, or, or should I, I be as outraged as I feel sure. at that behavior, which is well, my he, instinct is to be like, that guy is a prick and that's ridiculous. Uh, and it speaks to a larger issue, which is that, you know, sports in, in some ways has taken this very seriously. And in other ways, maybe has not taken it as seriously as it should. John, I, I'm, it has been the ultimate conundrum with sports playing in the pandemic. Because, you know, when, when you hear a coach say that, that if we had zero COVID tests, there would be no sports. He is correct when he says that. Okay. For instance, when you hear an NFL player test positive for COVID-19 on a Monday morning, that test is from Sunday morning. That guy just played in the game. That guy just played in a game. There is no way to play a game when there are zero and you're 100% positive, zero tests, unless you are in a bubble. So that's why he's saying that. And I'm sure he was pissed off that all of his doctors have cleared it. And then all of a sudden he gets on a plane and he shows up and he thinks that COVID is being used as a shield, which is absurd. It's positively absurd to say that another team is using a pandemic illness. Because they're afraid of Clemson. It's a duck competition. I mean, that was just used against my alma mater bias, decorated a broadcaster who should know better and apologize for it, literally after having the words leave his mouth on ESPN and Kirk Herbstreet saying that Michigan was going to raise a white flag. And as a matter of fact, COVID did prevent Michigan from playing its date with Ohio State, that if they did play, you know, it would not have been pretty. Um, so this is what he's saying is that, yeah, you know, my guy might've been positive, but my doctors cleared him. And if there's no zero, if, if we waited for zero tests, we wouldn't have a game. I mean, Justin Turner for crying out loud was removed in game six of a world series. Yeah. We are doing this in a world where technically, if you think about it from a complete 100% public health standpoint, where if you are just thinking about, we need to make sure everybody does not get sick, we should all be staying indoors. But this is the sports version of the argument and conversation that's playing out in every hamlet in this great country of ours, John, is about businesses being open and how many businesses should be allowed to be open and should they be allowed to be open indoors and outdoors and things of that nature. I mean, there's a huge shitstorm going on down here in Los Angeles as you and I are talking about this very subject with restaurants yes. and things of that sure. nature. So again, yes, college coaches are supposed to be guardians of the health and well-being of all of their players. And when you hear a college coach say that, it does not sound very good, to be very honest with you. But if we had to make sure that there was no pandemic at all, 
in the world, we would all stay home and there would be no sports going on right now. I, I take the point um, that if that was the only goal is that, you know, to keep everybody completely safe, you wouldn't be able to have sports. I get that. It seems in this case a little bit like a straw man argument, though, because in this no, instance, no. I'm, in I'm, this I'm, instance, I'm, you're like, you, wait, you, you asked me what might be going through Dabo swing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As some guy who's trying to play in a pandemic, like I did have Dabo on my show two days ago and I asked him, well, you know, what about expanding the playoffs? You, know, you got Coastal Carolina that's that's 10 and 0, you know, Notre Dame's 10 and 0. Yeah. You know, I'd love to see Coastal Carolina go against you guys. You know, I mean, let the kids play. And he was like, we've been playing since July. Yes. Like, I don't want this season to go on a day longer, you know? Right. Um, and I kind of didn't think of it that way. I kind of got lost in let them all play. Right. So, I mean, again, I totally understand the whole straw man argument from yeah, yeah, yeah. your point of view. Yeah. I'm just telling you like what a coach probably is thinking in the middle of all of this sure. in, um, I guess, a very myopic point of view. Myopic is uh, one way of putting it and maybe a kind, uh, understated way of putting it with respect to Dabo's point of view about this whole thing. Uh, that actually makes a pretty good time, I think, for us to take a break. So we are going to uh, uh, bring to a conclusion our discussion here of the right. one of the big stories that defined the year in sports uh, as it collided with uh, the broader culture. And that, of course, is COVID. And then come back and talk about the other uh, giant story uh, that defined 2020 when it comes to sports and society. And that is the extraordinary uh, year in activism on the part of players uh, and teams right. uh, across the sporting universe. Uh, really an amazing thing. It was really the year in a lot of ways of sports activism 2020 was, uh, particularly in the wake of George Floyd's killing. Uh, we will talk about that uh, with Rich Eisen right after the break. this country and this country does not love us back and it's just it's really so sad like I should just be a coach and it's so often reminded of my color you know it's just really sad we got to do better so that was Doc Rivers uh, in August of this year, after the Kenosha uh, incident that we talked about earlier, and uh, right in the middle of when the Republican National Convention was going on, uh, Doc Rivers, the coach at the time of the uh, Los Angeles Clippers, a famous basketball coach, uh, also a revered and respected figure in the league, uh, incredibly intensely emotional in that moment, uh, and also sort of uh, symptomatic, I would say, or illustrative of uh, the topic I raised before the break, which is that, you know, in a lot of ways, 2020 will be remembered as much for uh, the explosion in social activism that sports saw uh, as it will be for how sports dealt with the pandemic. You know, there were whole teams in, in more than one league that boycotted games 
Uh, in the NBA, you know that that Doc Rivers quote came in a, at a moment when NBA teams were about to boycott playoff games to take a stand for racial justice. I mean, a truly unthinkable thing. The, the two of the whitest leagues uh, and most conservative leagues imaginable, uh, Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League, also called off uh, games uh, to take a stand for racial justice. Uh, the most popular NASCAR uh, driver at one point had Black Lives Matter plastered across his best-selling racing jersey. Uh, Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, actually uttered the words Black Lives Matter uh, in 2020. Uh, you could find hashtag BLM in the dirt behind pitching mounds uh, in Major League Baseball. WNBA teams wore warm-up shirts that directly endorsed a political candidate, Reverend Raphael Warnock in, in Georgia, uh, and the NBA and its players poured millions of dollars into voter registration efforts. The the arenas were used for as uh, as 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 places to where you could actually vote as voting sites in in November. And then of course there was LeBron James who launched his whole more than a vote campaign. Having said all of that, and I apologize for the for the length of that preamble, but I think it's worth going through the list, going through the litany uh, to be reminded of it. I think Rich, it is inarguable that this has been the year of the loudest, uh, most intense, and most influential outcropping spate of political activism in the history of professional sports, certainly in our lifetime, and I, I, I think ever, right? So I guess my question is, how much did it blow your mind to see it from your vantage as it played out across the year, across the leagues, players, white and black, men and women, not just in America, but really around the world. How much did it blow your mind to see all that happen? And more importantly, where do you think all of this, sports activism that is, where do you think all of this goes from here? Oh gosh, that's a great question, John. I don't know. It depends on what moments require the, the athletes to speak up. You know, that, that soliloquy that you just played there was um, remarkable and also, you may have noticed that was made into a Lincoln Project ad. And my wife was working and, you know, my wife, Susie Schuster, still is working with the Lincoln Project. And she was the one who helped get that checkmarked by Doc to do that. You know, you had to approve it. And not many people in sports are going to say that sort of thing and then say, yeah, you know what? Make that a political ad. Go for it. Right. Doc's a special man. He's a special guy. So there are certain people that will say something and then there will certain people that will take it a step further. Um, Steve Kerr's another one who would do that just in the NBA, just off the top of my head. Not a lot of um, people will say, I will say something and yes, you can use it as well to further the social justice portion of what I am saying. So I don't know how many people will continue to speak up about this sort of thing. I don't know the answer to that, where it goes from here. What I do know is the concept of stick to sports is dead. It is dead and buried, John. 2020 buried it. I get that a lot whenever I have said anything about the, the world. And, you know, when this podcast hits, people see it and it's entirely possible that I'll lose Twitter followers again for talking about something in sports. It happens almost all the time, but I, I honestly don't care because it is something that, you know, I'm willing to talk about. But one thing that I will absolutely say is stick to sports is dead. When Jack Nicholas and Brett Favre put out statements in support of their presidential candidate. And uh, 
And for the record, Rich, just just pause just for a second, just to note that the candidate in question was not Joe Biden, but Donald Trump, the Republican incumbent, the Donald J. Trump. Right. And um, also when there are other sports media entities like Clay Travis's that absolutely is taking politics that and um, and putting a certain portion of politics onto uh, layering it onto sports by pointing out how another uh, side, if you will, uh, places a layer onto sports. Um, that's an entire, and it's he's doing very well. I mean, he's very successful doing that. Uh, he interviewed the president. So did uh, the the president. Uh, the, it was a a very rare sit down in the um, rose garden of the president of the United States and the barstool El Presidente sat down together. Yeah. So when 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 I hear you know you should stick to sports, you're just shut up and guy. dribble. Shut up no, and dribble. Shut up and dribble was said by Laura Ingram. Ingram. But the same, about, it's the same. Well, she said it about LeBron. LeBron, yeah. And she said it about other athletes of color. But when Drew Brees said what he had to say about kneeling, and he did, after saying what he said about kneeling, and he heard about why the kneeling happened several years ago by his teammates to tell him that there's no kneeling against the flag there's no kneeling against troops there's kneeling to bring attention as to why there's inequality then he basically said i understood what i said and why people were upset about it but if you recall when drew Brees did say that in the interim between Brees's second statement and his first laura ingram said why shouldn't we listen to what he has to say so why wasn't any shut up and pass yeah. Shut up and hand off. We know why. So stick to sports is dead yeah. and buried in 2020. That's what I know for sure. But like I said, my platform is to talk about sports and pop culture and have fun with it. Right. If there are things that happen in the real world that crash into my toy department that merits me to address it, I will do it. And yeah. when asked a direct question by you, I will answer it. So I, I cannot say what the long lasting effects of activism by athletes that we have seen in larger numbers and in louder voices than before. I don't know what the long-term effect will be. Right. I don't know how long the Black Lives Matter logo will be on the NBA floor or the fact that it takes all of us is a phrase that the NFL has mentioned about social justice. If that's going to continue on in 2021 and throughout the years to come, I don't know. Right. What I do know is stick to sports is dead. Right. And anybody who says that you should stick to sports should, you know, stick to noticing that people across both aisles and many aisles are saying what they want to say and everyone's doing it. This racial justice moment was a big moment, a big moment for the country. And you saw some unprecedented things happen. The NBA has had a lot of NBA players been more vocal about politics. LeBron obviously is a very good example. There's obviously been the, the Kaepernick example, but you know you didn't necessarily think that a Black Lives Matter jersey would be the biggest selling piece of merch in NASCAR in the past. That's an unusual thing uh, that occurred. And and obviously Major League Baseball and hockey canceling games. These are very very white sports. The Confederate flag too, John. Don't forget about the Confederate flag. Confederate flag. 
So you saw that happen. And then, uh, you know, I guess kind of inevitably, we saw something of a backlash that played out, especially from people on the right, a reaction to the displays of political activism. Most notably, when it came to the NBA, there was, I recall, in October, in the middle of the NBA playoffs, there was a Mm. story, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Sean Hannity did something talking about the ratings for the NBA Finals Game 3. And there was a Twitter post about that. And Ted Cruz dived in and commented on that Twitter post and said, you know, commenting about the ratings said, you know, not surprising. Personally speaking, this is the first time in years I haven't watched a single game in the NBA Finals. Hashtag go woke, go broke, which provoked Mark Cuban, the rather outspoken, famously outspoken owner of the Dallas Mavericks, to chime in on Twitter. He said, a U.S. senator with three NBA teams in the state employing thousands of people and he is rooting for their business to do poorly. This is who you are at Ted Cruz. Every minute of your life, this is exactly who you are. And Cruz fired back and said, I love the Houston Rockets and have rooted for them my entire life. I happily cheer for the Spurs and Mavericks against any non-Texas team. But Mark Cuban, the NBA is engaged in a concerted effort to one, insult their fans and two, turn every game into a left-wing political lecture. That's dumb. Uh, This went on, you know, back and forth uh, for a while between the two of them, the Cruz Cuban show. And, you know, easy to kind of, you know, laugh that off. I mean, you know, Ted Cruz is a clown and and Mark Cuban loves to take the bait uh, when it's thrown in front of him. But then we see Adam Silver coming out not that long after that and talking about what next season will look like in the NBA. And this is a quote from Adam Silver. He says, we're completely committed to standing for social justice and racial equality. And that's been the case going back decades It's part of the DNA of this league. How it gets manifested is something we're going to have to sit down with the players and discuss for next season. I would say in terms of the messages you see on the court and on our jerseys, this was an extraordinary moment in time when we began these discussions with players and what we all lived through this summer. My sense is there will be somewhat a return to normalcy that those messages will largely be left to be delivered off the floor. And I understand those people who are saying, I'm on your side but I want to watch a basketball game. So, you know, I I did not expect to hear that out of Adam Silver. And it did make me wonder whether in the short term, at least, some of the arguments that people on the right have made about the economic consequences or the supposed economic consequences of some of this stuff, the activism, may have had more traction with the league and with Adam Silver than I expected or that one would have thought. It's just like, are people tuning into an NBA game to have their awareness raised or to watch James Harden go off in a triple double and hope that the game does actually end in a close one. Like that is truly eventually what it truly is all about. Those exciting moments can be used by the players in their platforms and there can be other endeavors and reach out programs by the league other than putting a phrase on the floor. That is essentially what I think is the argument or the struggle back and forth about this sort of thing. Right. Now, do I wish that a phrase would not in any way, shape, and form engender a both sides conversation? Of course. But that's truly what it is, does come down to. You know, should my show every day be about this is a fun time, yeah, but. Right. Or when the yeah, but 
consumes the good time, I'll talk about the yeah, but, you know, you have to find the right balance. So, you know, I don't know what Adam Silver is thinking. I don't know what data he must be looking at. Yeah. I don't know what the agreement was that, okay, we will do this for this season in the bubble. And then we will remove the phrase from the floor and your names will have to go back to the top of your jersey as opposed to right above your waistband right. um because we're not going to let you put you know whatever phrase that is about social justice where your name goes like at some point i guess there does have to be a return to what it was before i guess i just don't know when that time is i want to ask you about two people one of sure. them is lebron who is everywhere this year between doing that virtual graduation where Obama was involved and then, you know, the more than a vote effort. And, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. LeBron was large this year and in addition to winning a championship again. I, I, and a lot of people now look at him with the efforts he's making and the kinds of things he's doing both on and off the court and sort of you hear more and more, this guy's going to run for office one day. You know, this is, this guy's going to have, this guy has a big future outside of sports and is taking on, you know, with education and all these other things, you know, as a guy who has the, the kind of broader view that you have about, the role of athletes and and obviously the extreme expertise you have when it comes to sports. When you see LeBron, what do you make of the role that he seems to be trying to wrap his arms around, which is not just one of the great basketball players of all time and the greatest of his era, but as, you know, kind of very self-consciously and is trying to style himself as more than that. I don't know where it goes. I'm not asking you to predict that, but I ask right. you like, just what are you seeing in that? I see a guy who is an entertainment mogul, which is what he wants to be, and somebody who is hopefully going to do more in terms of voting rights, which I think is a crucial subject matter of our generation right now, and somebody who is also on the basketball court, if I may, doing something that I don't think Jordan was able to pull off. And, you know, that's the constant argument yeah. is, is Jordan versus LeBron and so on and so forth an argument that will never be truly answered with the proper answer other than, of course it's Jordan, but that's just my own era. <laughs> but one thing that I, I definitely think that LeBron has been able to script in a way that Jordan was not is his end game. The beginning of the pandemic, the biggest sporting event was a television show recalling a team 20 years old, you know? And that last dance showed you that Jordan left the stage, yes, in the manner in which he wanted to with his last shot, and he wins the championship, but he wanted to stay in Chicago. He wanted to play with for the Bulls and have Phil as his coach. He probably needed a break, but did he just want this way to end like that? LeBron has already scripted it. He's gotten a two-year contract extension. He's got Anthony Davis signed. And when I say he's got Anthony Davis signed, Anthony Davis is represented by his firm that he started. Yeah. That is run by one of his friends and fellow moguls in Rich Paul and Maverick Carter, who's another mogul. I mean, they, these guys who have known each other forever are at the forefront of business and entertainment and are crushing it. And they right. are, you know, inspirational for people who want to do it. So he scripted his endgame. And interestingly enough, if you look at it, the end of his two-year, his contract right now here in Los Angeles has been extended by two years. It ends just 
as his son will be drafted into the NBA, leaving the possibility, if they want it, for his father to go join whichever organization drafts his kid. So he's got it set up, man. Does he ever? Yeah. He's got it set up everywhere. And, you know, kudos to him, man. Kudos. My last person is someone who's the opposite in a way, someone who's never had not had control over his script at all. And that's kind of the point, right? Is, is Kaepernick. I mean, you've watched this pretty carefully and, and closely yes. from your perch from start to where we are now. Is there any world in which Colin Kaepernick plays in the NFL? I, and, and- I, 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 that's a great question, man. I don't know. I don't know. The, the one thing I still haven't figured out yet, I haven't heard and I don't know, is what the hell happened about a year ago when out of the blue, it was announced that the NFL had invited all teams to go watch Colin Kaepernick work out yeah. to give him a chance to show off his wares in front of everybody. And then they insisted it had to happen within a five-day period. And Kaepernick and his people saying that there was something up and not trusting the NFL and thinking that the video would be used in a way against him or they couldn't take video and he couldn't show it to other people. And then he changed the location of the workout himself to a different spot about 45, 50 minutes later. So many teams were basically saying, we're, we're not going out there. We've set up here. This is where we are. And Hugh Jackson, who was all excited to script all the plays and run his workout for him, walked off and quit. And Callan said, I want this job. I want these jobs. It was contentious. It was very contentious and, and weird. And... I, I don't know. The problem was this year was never going to happen, man. Right. I mean, it was just never going to happen. And, and, and every single time that a quarterback goes down and you heard that, you know, we saw how the Broncos played with a, a practice squad wide receiver and yeah. boy, the Broncos are using a practice squad wide receiver and Kaepernick doesn't get a chance. Like even if Colin Kaepernick on planet earth, yeah. okay. That the Broncos who actually tried to hire him after the 49ers had cut him years ago, and something was up with Elway and him where Elway was interested and Kaepernick was interested. They couldn't come to a deal. Now Elway, if you want to talk about politics, Elway's of a certain political, uh, uh, you know, mindset where I, I don't think it would be possible to have those two together in an organization and put it all together though. There's COVID protocols. It took two weeks for Le'Veon right. Bell to go from the Jets to the Chiefs. Like it, it's just not going to happen this year. I don't know if there is a future. And it's, it's a shame, man. When he started, he was a points ATM. You put the card in, you pressed run or pass, and right. out came the money. I mean, right. he was unbelievable. And so many quarterbacks that are successful with his style of play. Lamar Jackson comes to mind, obviously, as the MVP who runs and passes. And, and you've got Russell Wilson running and passing and so many guys who pick up first downs with their legs and their arms. I mean, that's what Kaepernick was at the forefront of, man. And I would love to see him play. I'm curious about what you think history will say about this. There is definitely a school of thought that thinks, you know, regardless of what the future holds here, that Kaepernick will be written about and thought about as having been a hero, not one of the great football players of all time, but as one of the great a, a champion of a cause who represents something much yes. larger than himself. And that people who see that right now and think that he will have a big place in the history of, of the, where sports and activism and sports and race and justice come together. Does that seem right to you that that is what history's judgment? We can already tell that he, he will have that big place. Oh God. A I grave mean, injustice has occurred here. 
Yeah. I mean, people were kneeling all throughout this summer, weren't they? Yeah. You know, obviously part of the real reason why they were doing that also was because it was mimicking the officers putting the knee, knee on the neck of George Floyd. But people will be kneeling forever. Interestingly enough, the kneeling came from a suggestion from an army uh, veteran in, right. who was a long snapper in this league, Nate Boyer, who found, as fate had it, to be in Southern California when Kaepernick was on a preseason game after he was seen sitting during a national anthem. My colleague, Steve Weich of NFL Network and NFL Media Group noticed he was sitting during a national anthem in a preseason game, went up to him and asked him, what was that about afterwards? And he explained to him why he was doing it. And then Nate Boyer explained to him that if you take a knee, that's what we do in the army, next to your brother, you take a knee, Right. maybe that's what you should do. Yeah. Kaepernick did it and the rest is literally history. It's an extraordinary thing, you know, that someone, that someone whose career has been hobbled in the way that this person's career has been could loom as large in the in the consciousness about people around a professional sport. I don't know if there's an example of it I can think of. Well, well Ali um, obviously getting his belts taken away from him and, you know, right. I mean, that's, that's why you hear that, um, you know, and the comparisons are made, but, you know, Ali is the greatest. Kaepernick made one Super Bowl. Right. But it is the sport that the whole country is obsessed with, thankfully, right now. And that's part of the reason why he was doing it. He had a platform. He had an opportunity to let it be known the way he felt about certain things. I, I wish he didn't wear pig socks to a, a workout later on yeah. because that definitely undercut his explanation that he was not kneeling against the police. It definitely made his message more muddled than it ever needed to be. Yeah. And it still confused people to this day as to what the kneeling was about. But it truly is remarkable. It really is. All right. It seems like this would be a good time for us to take another break and try to go and sell a few more soap flakes on behalf of this podcast. We've had a, a super interesting conversation here about two of the big cultural, political, social stories that have dominated the year in sports talked about COVID, talked about political activism, but the one thing we have not yet talked about is the career of our guest, the great Rich Eisen. And there is a lot to talk about there. Someone who has been present at the creation and the development of a lot of really important seminal products and trends and phenomenon and developments in the way that sports gets covered. And God knows you can't really understand the role of sports in society without understanding the role of sports media in society. So uh, when we come back on the other side of that, Rich, we will uh, uh, talk a little bit more in a little bit more detail about you. I sat here in this chair in December and I retweeted it over the weekend when my dad passed away. God rest his soul. Asking everybody to pull together, reach out, love. So damn tough about it. Looking at the color of somebody's skin and thinking they're less than. Who the hell are you? It's a human being we're talking about. It bleeds and loves and wants and desires just like everybody else. How tough is it to ask somebody, what's on your mind? How can I help? 
How can I be a part of the solution? And I'll be honest, it's awful tough to do that when the highest individual in our country is tear gassing people who are peaceably assembling just so he can stroll across the street, grab a Bible and hold it upside down. And I know that pisses off a lot of people for me to say that, but I'm telling you what, it's difficult, but we've got to overcome it. That was the man of the moment, the man of the hour, the man who is here with us today on Helen Highwater. That was Rich Eisen back in June. Um, A very intense, very emotional moment, very intense, very emotional time. Not that long after George Floyd was killed uh, at the peak of the protests that were raging across the country for racial justice. It was a you know a very intense and very emotional time in a very intense mm-hmm. and very emotional year and a year in which we saw expressions of emotion of that kind uh, a lot in a lot of different settings where we are not used to seeing mm-hmm. them, including on sports television. And uh, I, I wanted to play it because it was so striking when I saw it originally uh, and I wanted to talk to you about it. It also kind of gets into some biographical elements about uh, your life that I want to talk about, but you know, in addition to how emotional you are there, it's also a moment where you speak in a very direct way about politics, something that I don't think you do all that often. I'm not saying you never do, but it's not kind of part of your normal daily broadcasting routine to be talking about Donald Trump and the way that you did there about what happened in Lafayette Square. So I want to talk about the way in which politics kind of became unavoidable, even for a sports broadcaster like you. But first, I just want to talk about the raw emotion of it. Um, you were, you know, on the brink of tears, there and I, I couldn't help but wonder how often that's happened to you in the past. How many times have you ever been in your job in a situation where you were struggling to not burst into tears during one of your broadcasts? Oh gosh, I was on the air when Stuart Scott passed away. So I, pa- I, I mean, I yeah, I, I got a little bit. It, but the uh, my my fantasy team name two years ago was Touch of the Vermeil which is what I've got right now, you know, because the famed Eagles and Chiefs coach who is known for tearing up. I have a little, that's what we always term on my show when you get emotional, I got to touch the Vermeil. But, uh, you know, my dad passed away. It's one year ago this Sunday that he passed away. And I, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm so thrilled and fortunate to have a show with my own name on it and have a place where there are broadcasting companies that feel that my voice is worthy of a platform with my name on it. And I don't take it for granted ever. And so I take the offer from these broadcasting entities to do it as a green light to put my emotions on my sleeve and think that people who tune in are tuning in to hear what I have to say, not like you you should tune in to hear what I have to say. I don't like having that sort of, that's not who I am. I'm just like, as long as I'm going to be here, I'm going to tell you what I think and uh, do it in a manner that's humble and from the heart yeah. and always do that. And in terms of, you know, what you just played there in June, I'll be honest with you, John, I'm, I'm not like Larry Sanders. When I'm done with the show, I'll go home and watch it four times over. You know, I, I, I just move on. That's yeah. the first time I've heard that. And it kind of, you know, hit me like, wow, I, I said that, <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I said that because it was a very emotional time. And, and I think I, I give voice 
to uh, what a lot some people are thinking. A lot of people, as you know, this is a very divided country right now, and people tune into a show like mine to forget about the country's divisions. But there are certain things that happen that raise to the level of requiring me to speak about it. And, you know, my wife, who's been in broadcasting for quite some time too, encourages me when I leave the house sometimes when she knows there's a big thing going on, talk about it. Yeah. Like when I was on the air the Sunday on NFL Network after Trump called players sons of bitches. Right. If you remember that. Yep, I do. And that created a huge shitstorm in the NFL that had actually just really uh, died down, for the lack of a better phrase. It was the year before when all the kneeling took place. And then the next season is where there really was not much kneeling going on, but it started again after that phrase. And she encouraged me as I left the door here at like 4.30 in the morning, like, you know, speak from the heart. Yeah. And I addressed the president through the television camera that day and said something. So just said what I thought needed to be said. And what I always think about, certainly when my wife says it, is just like, everything's on the internet now, right? Forever. Yeah. What would my kids think if I if they knew I had something to say and a way in which to say it and didn't say it, like what, right. what would they say? It, it's interesting though, right? Because I think for people who are good at their jobs, who do this job, it's not hard to be, you know, honest and uh, sincere and let a little bit of themselves show. I, I mean, it's always hard to be, I think, emotional in public for some people, right? But I'll give you an example of a thing that has happened to me, which is a converse, but it's a little bit illustrative, right? Sure. I have been asked to do television on some occasions on the MLB network, about maybe a dozen times I've been on MLB where I've gone, had to go in and sit that and sat there next to, uh, you know, John Smoltz or whoever. I'm not, you know, anything like a professional baseball analyst, but I know a lot about baseball enough about it to be able to talk about it and not make an ass of myself on MLB, but it feels a little weird. It feels different to me, decidedly different to be talking about baseball then going on MSNBC, which I do every day and talk about politics, which feels like second nature, right? There's a little yeah. bit of a fish out of water quality to that, right? Mm -hmm. When you have been called on in this period, this Trump era, when you have felt when your wife or you, yourself or both of you have thought to yourself, this is a moment like where politics has crossed over into in a very direct way, like the, the, the Trump example you just gave, do you feel even though you have no problem being Rich Eisen on the air, do you feel a little like I feel on MLB? Do you feel like a little fish out of water? Like this is not comfortable space for me, but I know it's important to do it. You just know, no, because uh, the, the awkwardness comes from the fact that you're providing an intrusion to somebody in your fan base that doesn't believe what you're saying. Right. And may be made to feel less than because you're saying it with such conviction, it implies that they're less than. And that's not what a broadcaster's supposed to do. That's why they're called a broadcaster. It's supposed to broaden out the audience. It's not supposed to narrow down the audience. It's not narrow casting. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's what we see too much of sure. these days, certainly in the news world and the way that people are taking in their information. It's too much narrow casting that's going on right now. So that's the way... I feel when I am doing that because I know I am by nature of talking about something that is not in the scope of why somebody is in fact tuning in to say NFL Network. They're tuning in to find out is my team winning or losing today? Should I 
gamble on this game or not? Just the over on, I'm serious. Like, I know that's why people are tuning in about their fantasy teams or whatever, that here I am maybe using this platform, although it was such a major story at the time. It's not like in the middle of this week 14 when there is no politics that are happening in in the sports world. Like, hey, instead of telling you about how the Vikings and the Bucks are battling it out for the sixth and seventh seed right now, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Washington, you know, and not with the football team. Like, I'm not going to do that. And I try not to do that on my daily show where people do tune in to hear about what is going on in the sports world or my own opinions. But there are times where I just have to do it. I feel like I have to do it. And if I don't do it, I'm not doing a service to myself or the fans. And, you know, I will get people who disagree with my point of view calling into my show. And I, I, I always take the time, even if it does appear on occasion, John, that the hat that they're wearing is not a baseball one, but is made of tinfoil, that I will (laughs) have a conversation about it. Because I cannot sit here and say, can't we talk about it? Can't we have a conversation about it? And then shut down an actual conversation about it. I can't, I won't do it. I won't do it. I've got to be consistent on that. That's my, my way of going about it. It seems like you like wanted to be a journalist your whole life. Were you always going to be a sports journalist or did you no, have some actually, period? What I wanted to do was um, the two things I wanted to be. I wanted to be a sportscaster. So I am living out a dream, but play yeah. by play, which I have gotten to do. Um, growing up, Howard Cosell and uh, Marv Albert were the guys, you know, born in Brooklyn, raised in Staten Island. I watched Marv on WNBC. Uh, WNBC every single night, um, uh, do his sports cast, Warner Wolf, Mar- uh, Howard Cosell, loved watching him on Monday Night Football and doing his guest appearances on The Odd Couple, which I'd watch on Channel 11 in New York City. And that was my childhood. And I, I wanted to do that, but I also wanted to do a late night talk show. Hmm. I did grow up watching Carson and then Letterman and do every single day when I interview people want to bring a certain sense of humor to everything as well as listen. You know, that's the most important part about interviewing somebody that I found out is listening. Um, and I apologize if I, I'm a control freak when it comes to interviewing people. I'm, I hope I haven't taken over too much here. I'm a host. When you interview yeah. a host, you're interviewing a control freak in a way. So Trust um, me, I know what I'm getting into. Okay. So um, that's what I wanted to do. And I did stand-up comedy in college at Michigan. Really? So it's the toughest huh. thing I've ever had to do. Toughest thing I've ever had to do. It's made everything else easier. So I did that for about four years. And I kind of wound up knowing that I wasn't cut out for stand-up comedy. And uh, I kind of blended the the comedy and sports casting and got so fortunate to be invited to come on SportsCenter at age 26. And that was my lottery ticket. I I hit the jackpot by being on SportsCenter and not just being on SportsCenter, but at the time when Dan and Keith, Patrick and Olbermann were on before me and Robin yeah. Roberts and Bob Lee and Charlie Steiner were doing the early sports center. And then um, I showed up and two days in, you know, uh, a colleague of mine peeks his head outside of uh, the stairwell, looks at me, goes, you're the new kid, right? I'm like, yeah. And he says, uh, you're funny. You're doing a lot of the stuff I'm doing. That was Craig Kilborn. Yeah. Berman was amazing to me. And just being a 26 year old and in a golden age of the 90s sports center, and then um, being teamed up with somebody as vibrant and also opposite of me and Stuart Scott, just yes. coming from a totally different background and a totally different way of looking at the world and a white Jewish kid and a proud 
brilliant black man from Chicago and North Carolina, just bashing us together with all our pop culture differences and different ways to communicate, bashing it together was truly one of the highlights of my life. And I do get emotional just thinking about him and yeah. my God, you know, I get a touch of the Vermeil again and just him, <laughs> him having two beautiful daughters. I've got, you can hear my seven-year-old daughter running around here. And my wife was working at ESPN at the time. And Stuart always played the two of us towards the middle and played Cupid and he was at my wedding and, you know, and he was teaching me to be a girl dad without me being, without even knowing it, you know, just amazing times, man. Amazing. Is it, it is, I'll, I'll ask the most cliched question in the world. I'm sure it's been asked you a thousand times, but I still, I it's unavoidable from my point of view, which is like, you know, that period at ESPN, does it feel to you like you were basically in the sport broadcasting parallel to SNL, you know, that that's like oh, what that gosh, is yeah. the, getting picked at that moment sure. in one of the glory runs of a seminal, a seminal network at a oh. seminal time when a lot of how sports was commented on, yes, talked about, analyzed in the world of television was invented really. And a whole sensibility for how we think, how we deal with television sports. The timing was exquisite. And obviously the ensemble was amazing. Do you feel like yeah, I'm basically like Belushi. I was lucky enough to be no, like invited to be I, with I Belushi to, I, I, The analogy when you drop Belushi is different. I was not there when the, you know, you know ESPN the started in 79, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So I guess may, could I be in the, the yeah. Mike Myers, Dana Carvey era of it when it was already a mature, right. but still yet growing um, entity? Better. Yes. Yeah. I, I showed up, I guess, would that be in year 16 or 17 of, of ESPN? Right. Yes. But there for seven years where... It totally changed. It absolutely changed from the beginning to end. I was there at a watershed moment when it was uh, huge and big, but also at the very end of the highlight era. The highlight era died when I was there because now, shit, John, somebody hits a, a quarterback, you know, decleats a quarterback, um, and you can see it on three different Twitter accounts in the palm of your hand five minutes after it happened. Yeah. So I was on SportsCenter when at the very end of the construct of Sports Center was talking to people, assuming you had yet to know what had happened. And then right. it morphed into a show about why something happened. Right. And that's when Crossfire was big too. I'm yeah. serious. Like, you know, Sports yeah. Center, ESPN's just a television entity as anything else picks up on other networks. It was Crossfire. So my job went from being an entertaining distributor of information that you did not know to being the debate moderator between two analysts taking the Arab and Israeli position over the 4-3 defense of the Cleveland Browns and letting them bash together over an argument that had no business actually having because there was no reason to argue over that. And that's when the split screen argument shows got born that the best yeah. one of, you know, you can't even talk, call it that. I mean, not everyone's PTI. There's PTI and then there's everyone else, you know? Yes. I was literally just about to say, you know, PTI, so, which is like oh, in my... Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most it's great important. It it's a uh, it's an incredible show, and I feel like so much um, was born out of it. Um, I mean, look, Sports Center and PTI. I mean, uh, they're both. I mean, they're 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 seminal in in a lot of ways. I, I ask you one other question about this about this era, just because you know it's a kind of pro profound era in some ways. The period when you were at ESPN. I think actually maybe next week on this program, we're going to have Aaron Sorkin on, um, oh, who fantastic. is someone I know pretty well. Well, you um, know, you know, uh, not to go too deep in the weeds, but 
you know, sports night was based. Well, that's on- what I was about. That's yeah, yeah. You're not going to the. That's where I was going. Okay. I was going to ask you whether like I, I'm asking. I wonder whether you are a fan of sports night. Sports of night, of course. For people who don't know, the first Aaron Sorkin before there was a few good men. Before there was, uh, before there was obviously the West Wing. There was a show called Sports Night, which was essentially a a show that was that took what Rich and his colleagues did at at, at Sports Center, right. and made an Aaron Sorkin show out of it. Yes. Before anybody really knew who Aaron Sorkin was, and I'm curious if you're a if anybody had, who's listening to this podcast has not seen it, you should. I think it was three seasons, and yeah. it's a great show. Well, Josh um, Charles and Peter Krause were the main sports anchors. Yes, and Felicity Huffman was the producer. And they also had um, it was, Josh Molina. Uh, Josh Molina was like familiar think, from the West Wing, right? Uh, I think he was like a researcher or something like yes. that. And of course, Robert Guillaume was the the I guess news director of the entire outfit. Yes. And before it launched, and Aaron Sorkin was writing it, he paid a visit to Bristol, and we had a meeting. Not me, but him and me, and about four or five other anchors and he picked our brains about some stories and a bunch of them told some stories um including a couple that made it on the air uh one of them was the famous story of steve levy talking about the back problems of randy johnson and he said the back problems were he's suffering from a bulging dick on the air um and he he read the prompter instead of saying disc it came out dick and Olbermann was next to him and they took him next. His story was next. And Keith famously just was at the camera. He was head went like this and he <laughs> waved them back to Steve Levy. <laughs> and that made the air, he didn't say bulging dick, but they, they did say there was something wrong with the prompter. Only Aaron Sorkin could wordsmith his way around that by without saying the word, but saying it anyway. Yeah. And another one was when the, you know, uh, frequently in the old sports center studio, it was built in a garage. Um, and uh, the the ceiling, whenever it rained heavily, I would be doing a lead in and it would, I would feel the drips of water hitting my head. And, you know, even through my flock of seagulls hair that I had at the time. So I told mm. that story and I was so excited that when that was actually used, it's a big proud moment in my career. And that's my sports night story. That's fantastic. I love that. Well, let me ask you one last thing. If you had to make the list, it's a terrible list to have to make. Mm-hmm. You know, top your top three most important sports stories uh, you've covered. Most important sports important. story I covered or I was on the set for was on the air on uh, the September 12th, 2001. I mean, I think that goes without saying. That's number one. Probably number two is going to be when the pandemic ends. Whenever the hell that's going to be. And... Yeah. um Number three, what would it be? It would be launching the NFL Network. No one can ever take right. that away from me. I was the first guy to stroll out there on NFL Network and start something that I hope will be going on for a long time. Well, as do we, and given both the success of the show and how essential it's become for football fans in its life on the air, and given how central the NFL is to American life, I think you will have a, a good long run and uh, uh, I feel bad we've kept you here for a very long time too. So I appreciate you taking the time out of what I'm sure is a very, very, very busy schedule to spend a little time with us here on Hell and High Water. You are a great American for dedicating as much of your life to the great sport of football as you have and as much of your day to Hell and High Water as you have. So thank, thank you, you very much. Thanks for having me on. Be good and take care. Say hello to my hometown. 
Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Rich Eisen for being here with us. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us in the Apple Podcast app. It helps people to find out what we're doing here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 